Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 40 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Hi, good. We've done well. It's a midday on a Saturday and I don't want to jinx it, but our my dogs and your kids are awfully quiet at the moment, so hopefully we can keep that up. <laughs> my kids are out. My wife has, considering it's the middle of the day, we normally record at night, she's very kindly taking them on, a, on an excursion, oh. so uh, hopefully we can get through the episode before they <laughs> return, but... Um, I've, I forgot to eat though because it's normally you know we record in the in the night. I haven't timed this very well. I've, you you mentioned having having lunch before we um before we got online, but I forgot to eat. I've had coffee though, so oh yeah, that'll do. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that gets me through. <laughs> Uh, we have some more uh, Patreon shoutouts this week, Chloe. Yes, thank you and welcome to Mark, Kai Piacek. Matt Deedon Hill, George Nash, Danielle Jackson, Stevie Day, and Sean, I'm going to hand the last one to you. Okay, I'll give it a shot. It is a, it is a mouthful. I think I'm going to go with Kyriakos Sinivtis. So hopefully I've got that somewhat uh, close there. That sounds right. We think that your teachers would have asked you your whole life how to pronounce things when you had a new one. We didn't have that chance, so we appreciate you. Sorry if we got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you to everyone who's supported us this week and who continues to support us. It's uh, much appreciated. And a quick trigger warning for today's episode, guys. This case contains some fairly graphic descriptions. We'll try and give you a heads up when we get to that point. Uh, there's also some topics surrounding child sex offences and also the LGBTQI plus communities. So we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're covering a series of brutal murders that occurred in Wollongong, New South Wales, before the turn of the century. It's been a highly requested case, it's a very infamous case, and there's a lot to it. So we're going to give it two parts to cover it all as we like to. This will be the first today. Without further ado, let's get into it. Friday the 26th of June 1998, Wollongong, New South Wales. The windows of the house at 1 Reserve Street had all been smashed with rocks 
Firecrackers had been hurled into the yard and scorched the once lush green grass, and graffiti plastered across the front fence read, You're a wanker. The home's sole occupant was 62-year-old Frank Arkell. He spent the majority of his days as a recluse, tending to the gardens of Gilmore Park, land that his family had previously owned, but donated to the city council. This morning had been like any other, quiet and lonely for the disgraced former Lord Mayor and long-standing councillor of Wollongong. In the past half a decade, Frank had been embroiled in child sex offence allegations stemming from the Wood Royal Commission, the driving force behind his hermit lifestyle and the aforementioned property damage from locals. He'd taken a phone call earlier this morning from a young man named John and then headed out to the Leisure Coast Garden Centre in Fairy Meadow to fetch some plants he'd ordered. Upon his return home, around 3pm, Frank made his bed and changed into a white singlet and green tracksuit pants with a yellow stripe. He looked up at his glass sliding door and saw young John standing in his doorway. It would be the last thing Frank Arkell would ever see. David John O'Hearn was born in December of 1937 in Wollongong, New South Wales. He had two older brothers named Tony and Graham, a younger brother John and three sisters, Anne, Chris and Sue. They had differing views on David depending on their age in relation to his. Some of his siblings viewed him as a bossy older brother, others as a father type figure. From a young age, David always worked. Their father wasn't around. Apparently he had a penchant for the bottle. When his brothers moved from Wollongong as soon as they were able, David was entrusted with a role that would generally fall to the eldest sibling, a bit of a caregiver to his other brothers and sisters, and to help mum out, both around the house and financially. He worked part-time from a young age, around 12 it was said. He'd worked for the uh, local fruit and veggie man, the baker, the milkman, and eventually full-time at the local news agency. David was a very generous man, generous to a fault, his siblings said. He was very giving, and he regularly bought gifts for his siblings and his mother. After serving in the armed forces under compulsory service requirements in Australia at that time, David went beyond the minimum, rising to the rank of sergeant, before eventually leaving and returning to Wollongong, where he worked at a large retail store called Fairleys. David was a natural at sales. He had the gift of the gab and was good with people. But he was very much his own man, and working for someone never really suited him. He went by the beat of his own drum. He had that entrepreneurial flair. So as the 50s came and went, into the mid-60s, David left Wollongong. His sister's all grown up and living their own lives now, and he went to look for opportunity to seek that spark he needed. He worked for a menswear stall called Peeps, and later for a larger retail chain. It was here he really discovered his taste for the finer things in life. You know, nice clothing, top-notch furnishings, and he loved water views. This would be a recurring theme for David as life went on. And I, I think we can all relate to that to some extent. You know, many of us are uh, water view or beach type people. Others like the tree change as opposed to the sea change. But that was David's taste. 
and his apartment in Rose Bay cost quite a bit, so he wasn't left with much cash at the end of the week, and his mum would often help out with the necessities of life. Marion, David's mum, would be very helpful to him as he launched his own business ventures in the time to come. He took over running a kiosk for a short time, then with a business partner ran a small snack bar called Fryer Tucks. Marion often ran the counter there on occasion. By the 70s, David had had enough of Sydney and decided to follow his brothers Graham and John down to Tasmania, where he worked for Maya for a time before starting his own kitchenware business. David lived in Sandy Bay, which again has those water views. It's quite an affluent place, as I understand. I have relatives who lived there once upon a time and have always heard it's a nice spot. By the 90s, however, David's kitchenware business was flailing and his mother's health was ailing. Rhyme intended. He was a regular visitor back to Wollongong while in Tassie, coming back for birthdays and weddings of his siblings regularly. They were all close and got along very well. So by 1994, David had returned to Wollongong to help care for his mother and try to establish a bit of a nest egg for himself as retirement years approached. He bought a townhouse in Albion Park Rail and what was described as a mixed business in Kanahuka Road. He bought this business and kept on the local delivery man, Joshua, who the previous owner had employed. So again, generous to a fault, David was. He was a good person, evident in his actions, and he'd go on to become good friends with young Joshua's family. So this business of his was sort of like a a convenience store or a milk bar of sorts, I took it. Bread and milk, coffee and tea, cans of beans and tuna, biscuits, etc. Not a fresh fruit and veg kind of place, but uh, you you can picture the type, Chloe. The non-perishable essentials. David was a lean, sun-tanned 60-year-old man by this time in the late 90s. Again, known locally as a great person. He'd, uh, he'd run a tab for the locals, actually, if they were short on the coin, telling them to simply pay him off when they could. After a day of banter and smiles at the store on Friday the 12th of June 1998, David drove home in his blue Hyundai Sonata back to Albion Park Rail around 10 clicks away, stopping briefly at Dapto for a few groceries before continuing on his way, arriving home around 6pm. David had a two-storey townhouse here, and his French polished furniture, lead crystalware and pro-heart paintings were signs of his affluent tastes. The following morning, sometime around or just after 7am, Joshua's father, Joshua being David's delivery boy, was driving past the shop on Canahooker Road and noticed crates of milk and bread piled up out the front of the store, untouched. This was well past the opening time for the corner store owner. David was known to be an early riser, up and about at 5am, ready to get the day's business. So this stood out, it was unusual. Joshua got the call from his father and was understandably worried. He tried calling his boss, wondering if he'd perhaps slept in, became ill, but he didn't answer his phone. Now, this was odd for David, a creature of habit, to shirk his duties like this. Like we said, he was a reliable local stalwart. So when Joshua contacted some of David's family, they knew all too well that this was way out of character. David's sister Chris was the closest to his townhouse in Albion Park Rail, She went there with her husband to suss out what was going on. Joshua and his father arrived soon thereafter. It seemed as though David was at home because his Sonata was parked there, 
but the alarm bells really started to ring when they approached his front door and it was unlocked. They'd already knocked on the windows around the place. David's curtains were all closed and they were all surprised when the front door was unlocked. Chris and Joshua went inside first, but they only took a few steps before seeing David dead on the floor in the living room. The pair ran from the house, screaming and in shock, and then called the police. And a quick trigger warning here again, guys, if you're a little bit timid around uh, graphic descriptions. It was an absolutely gruesome murder scene. David had been decapitated and mutilated beyond recognition. One of his hands sat on the lounge nearby. He'd been disemboweled, his intestines sitting on a silver tray alongside his body. David's penis had also been cut and the handle of a hammer had been inserted into his rectum. In the kitchen sink lay David's head, partially covered in water, with one eye gouged out. And if this scene wasn't disturbing enough, it would get worse. There were drawings around the place, a pentagram on one of the walls, an inverted cross on another, and on a mirror the word Satan had been scrawled, and all of this had been written in David's blood. Police discovered a number of items that had been used in the murder around the house – Four knives, a metal saw, a razor blade, and a corkscrew. But these weren't the murder weapons. These had all been used mostly in the mutilation of the body post-mortem. The murder weapon found nearby was discovered to be a heavy crystal decanter. This decanter had a lot of blood staining on it. Indeed, there was a lot of blood splatter everywhere, which indicated the majority of the wounds had been inflicted while David was on the ground. There was a lot of personal property strewn throughout the place, initially indicating to police that robbery might have been a motive. But the attack on David was just too severe. There was clearly a lot of anger from this perpetrator, and a few ransacked drawers didn't really give legs to the robbery motive, considering this. To locals around Dapto, Dave O'Hearn was the friendly face behind the counter of the corner store. That's why they can't understand how anyone could kill him, especially in such a horrible way. I just can't imagine him being involved in anything that would warrant what he went through. This was a quiet, decent, helpful man, Chloe. It was baffling why someone would want to do this to him, but there was one clue alluding to a possible motive. David's pants were down around his ankles, and with the handle of the hammer inserted, as we mentioned before, police wondered if this was possibly a crime committed against him because he was homosexual. It was never confirmed if David was homosexual or heterosexual, and while in one way it doesn't matter, in the context of his murder it kind of did. The media reporting on David's death in the weeks after his murder would take a toll on the O'Hearn family, as reports ran rife about him potentially knowing his killer and having a secret life. David's family were guarded and uncertain about his sexuality. They knew he had girlfriends growing up and had even gotten one pregnant once but some family suspected he might be gay. He was certainly articulate, possibly effeminate, but he had never come out to his family, except for one time when, over a few wines, his young brother John posed him the question. David responded that he was bisexual. Police investigations confirmed David had had three relationships during his lifetime and confirmed he had had homosexual relations, but he wasn't in a relationship at the time of his murder and he had no disgruntled exes. They all spoke well of him and their time together. So this line of inquiry really went nowhere. 
but it's an obvious first port of call for police to look at those relationships and work their way out from there. But it was becoming more and more likely that a stranger had done this to David. Police had pieced together his last movements by this time, and there were no reports of him being followed or fearful, anxious or worried or anything like that as he went about his daily life. A puzzling thing for police, however, was that there were no signs of forced entry into the townhouse. So this was at odds with the stranger angle and suggested David possibly knew his killer or he had let them in. Or it was possible the door was unlocked and they'd simply waltzed in. His groceries were still in the car, so that also suggests the attack had occurred not long after David had returned home that evening. It's also possible that his attacker was lying in wait and forced David out of his car to open his own front door, giving possible explanation as to why the groceries were still in the car and why there were no signs of forcible entry. So police needed the results of forensics at this point to either open up or close down potential lines of inquiry. They determined the cause of death was blunt force trauma from the aforementioned decanter. There was hair and blood all over that. David had been hit on the back of the head. He wasn't facing his attacker, so it was a surprise attack. They also had some fingerprints from the decanter, but these came back with no match in the police's database so they knew the killer wasn't a convicted criminal. The tools found nearby to the body didn't have any prints, but they were very similar to items found in the cupboard above David's fridge, so this suggested the killer had used weapons from David's own house. He hadn't come pre-prepared with his own implements. A man found murdered in his home on the south coast may have been the victim of a satanic cult. The macabre case, just south of Wollongong, has detectives baffled. Police believe the killing was some sort of a ritual, the work of devil worshippers. So then we had the satanic angle. This theory was an obvious one based on the blood markings. It was also a confusing one for police, with a number of these clues pointing in several different directions. Police Strike Force Lima initially had five persons of interest in David O'Hearn's murder. One in particular was a guy named Keith Schreiber, who police intel revealed had alleged satanic leanings. Keith also lived in Albion Park Rail, on the same street as David O'Hearn. Police visited Keith's house, but at the time he wasn't home. Instead, they spoke to his housemate, Mark, Mark was quite complicit and let the police have a look around Keith's bedroom. In the bedroom, they discovered some pretty disturbing drawings that, at first glance, appeared to be renderings or at least very consistent with the crime scene of David O'Hearn's murder. So we're talking headless bodies, disembowelment, etc. Police had to locate Keith Schreiber and talk to him. There was no question about that. These drawings alone made him a strong suspect in the murder, if not directly involved, at least with some knowledge of it. There were just too many similarities in these sketches. They got word from Mark that Keith worked as a filleter at a fish market, so police went to visit him there. They interviewed Mark, hoping he could shed some light on Keith's movements around the time of the murder, but he couldn't give police anything particularly useful other than an alibi for Keith. So down police went to Nowra, about 70 kilometres south of Wollongong, where they met Keith Schreiber as he was gutting fish. Keith's story was that he was down in Nowra with his employer when David O'Hearn's murder took place. And the drawings? They were simply copies of CD covers and artwork from his favourite metal band, Cannibal Corpse. 
Perhaps the coincidences were just that, shocking, gruesome coincidences. Police spoke with Keith's employer, who confirmed that Keith had been sleeping on his floor at that time, and confirmed his alibi for the day and night before they started early at the market the following morning. So this somewhat cleared Keith Schreiber for now. He was still an intriguing person of interest, but other than these drawings and him living near David O'Hearn, nothing else connected him. So the police had other people to look into and other four strong persons of interest to investigate. In the meantime, as the investigations and media frenzy around the hunt for the killer in Wollongong raged on, two weeks flew by until reports of another murder surfaced, just one kilometre away. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. MP and alleged pedophile Frank Arkell murdered in his Wollongong home. His killer is being hunted by the same team of detectives investigating the decapitation murder of another man at nearby Albion Park Rail two weeks ago. The body of former Wollongong Lord Mayor Frank Arkell had been discovered by Maria, his housekeeper of 42 years, at 8am on Saturday the 27th of June 1998. She spotted him whilst entering the glass doors of his granny flat, which was at the rear of Number 1 Reserve Street in Wollongong. Frank occupied much of the main residence also, with the exception of his late mother's bedroom, which was left untouched, but he mainly utilised the granny flat. Maria had arrived, as she would any other day, newspaper in hand, to deliver to Frank, when she saw beyond the open glass sliding door, Frank on the floor, face up, bloody, battered and non-responsive. She went into the main residence and phoned the police, understandably shocked at what she just witnessed. We talked a bit about Frank's situation and how this played out in the introduction of the episode, and we'll go through some more details around that shortly. Frank's body would prove hard to identify, even though there was little doubt who it was. There was a lot of blood and substantial injuries to his face and head. He'd been strangled, there was an electrical cord around his neck, and a nearby lamp was covered in blood and had clearly been used to inflict a massive amount of blunt force trauma. So again, these were weapons of opportunity from within the victim's home. There wasn't the satanic imagery or severe post-mortem mutilation like at the David O'Hearn murder scene, but the killer had put three tie pins in Frank's face, one in his cheek and one in each eye. And again, the place had been ransacked with personal belongings strewn all over. 
Police searched the granny flat for trace evidence, the box of tie-pins located being a good place to start for fingerprints, but the prints on the tie-pin box didn't come back with a hit in the police database. They also didn't come back matching any of the prints located at the O'Hearn murder scene. Now, when I first heard that, knowing with the, the power of hindsight that these two murders are both connected, I was a bit surprised, Chloe, but all that meant was that these different fingerprints obtained at each scene uh, were different to one another, not necessarily from different offenders. So this was all very baffling to the police. There were obvious similarities at the scenes. The time frame and area suggested they were connected, but there were differences too. Unlike David O'Hearn's murder, however, there was an obvious possible motive for the killing of Frank Arkell. Revenge, stemming from recent child sex offence allegations. There's one thing I'm totally opposed, is young people being interfered with by older people. Thirteen months ago, the former Lord Mayor was arrested and charged with 29 sex offences involving boys and men. He was due to stand trial in September on four of the charges. Police are keeping a close eye on suspected pederasts living in the area, just in case. This angle was looked at hard by the police, with many of Frank Arkell's alleged victims interviewed, their backgrounds and alibis checked. But all of these persons, who might have had an axe to grind over these accusations, were ultimately cleared. So what was the link between Arkell and O'Hearn? Well, Frank had long been assumed to be homosexual, not openly, perhaps a sign of the times. So they were both possibly homosexual. That was all the police could link. There were no other coincidences or links. The men didn't have intertwining lives or any common denominators. Still, that didn't stop the media at the time linking the killings erroneously in other ways. Police have set up a new task force to investigate Mr Akel's murder. It will work closely with another team looking into the violent death of David O'Hearn. It's thought both men were involved in a child sex network. Frank Arkell was facing multiple sex charges, accused of drugging young men, then forcing them to have sex with him. It's believed he was well acquainted with 60-year-old David O'Hearn, who was found murdered in his Wollongong townhouse two weeks ago. These weren't facts. It was the media making things up for sensationalism, and it was about both men, in fact. We're going to talk a bit more about the man Frank Arkell was in just a minute, but this was very damaging to the O'Hearn family and smeared David's reputation. Frank's was already smeared, as we covered in the intro. Police obviously had looked into this and found absolutely nothing in David O'Hearn's history to do with child sex offences or abuse, so that wasn't a connecting factor. Before we get into discussing another couple of unsolved crimes back at this time that police were now considering as part of this same connected series of murders from a potential serial killer, I wanted to take a few moments to talk about Frank Arkell. This guy, the former Lord Mayor of Wollongong, is really only remembered for the accusations of child sex offences prior to his murder. But these things aren't always black and white, and we try to paint a, a fair picture of everyone we discuss close, so it's only right to show some respect and talk about him as a person, not just the end tale of his murder and the throwaway label of him being an alleged child sex offender. Francis Neville Arkell was born in September 1929. His family were one of the first European families to settle in Wollongong, initially working in farming and grazing before diversifying into property management. 
Frank lived his entire life pretty much in the family home at one reserve street. After attending the local Christian Brothers School, he went into banking and worked for the ASX before getting into real estate. From the mid-60s to mid-70s, Frank would get voted onto the local council before defeating Tony Bevan for the position of Lord Mayor of Wollongong in 1975. He'd hold this position for a further 17 years, and he really loved Wollongong, did Frank? He spearheaded the city's metamorphosis throughout the mid-80s, selling Wollongong to the world, the wonderful, wonderful Wollongong, Frank would say. The city was traditionally a steel and coal industry hub, but with mass layoffs at BHP's Port Kembla operations, Wollongong really suffered during this time, as residents moved closer to Sydney to look for work, and indeed just to live and shop in general. As Lord Mayor... Frank began selling the city to developers and investors, spruiking the suburb as an affordable area with pristine beaches, serene bushlands and a leisurely lifestyle. He promoted developments of malls in Crown Street, Cura Street, areas we talked about in the Kim Barry episode, and it worked. Hotels started cropping up and populations shifting back from Sydney due to the affordability and increasing job opportunities. 1991 would be the year signalling a big knock for Frank Arkell in more ways than one. He ran for state parliament, lost, and also lost his position as Lord Mayor. But most damaging of all would be when former Lord Mayor, who Frank had previously defeated, Tony Bevan, died of cancer. In his wake, a bunch of incriminating tapes were found in Bevan's possession, linking him and many others to an organised pedophile ring in Wollongong and Sydney throughout the 70s and 80s. Of the 96 tapes found, half were erased by an associate of Bevan's, and one of the tapes featured a conversation with Frank Arkell, allegedly between him and one of Bevan's boys. The recording, dubbed the Scorpion Tape, was leaked to the Illawarra Mercury newspaper. The Wood Royal Commission into Police Protection of Pedophile Rings commenced in 1996. Frank Arkell was arrested in 97 at his home on Reserve Street and charged with 29 offences, ranging from indecent and sexual assault to buggery and using a stupefying drug to commit an indictable offence, all without consent, on four victims aged between 14 and 18. At the committal hearings, testimonies from the victims were heard. One was completely dismissed. This was an allegation that Arkell strongly denied, having sex with a 14-year-old in a public toilet. We won't get into the details of all the allegations, but they ranged from repeated encounters over a period of time to essentially spiked drink-type scenarios. Ultimately, 25 of the 29 charges were dropped with just four remaining against two victims and having enough evidence to proceed to trial. Frank Arkell and his alleged victims never got their day in court. He was murdered before that time came, so his guilt or innocence was never proven. And look, we're not trying to diminish the seriousness of these allegations. Obviously, they are very serious crimes if he committed them. We've already heard of the erroneous media reports surrounding this case of two of the victims to this point. I just think it's important to point these details out in fairness because it's technically incorrect to label this man uh, a child sex offender. He might have been, but he might not have been. 
We'll never know that, as the evidence was never heard by uh, a jury of his peers. So, in short, I suppose these things are never black and white, but often a gamut of grey. We don't have the time to really delve into all the details surrounding the case against Frank Arkell, but whatever could have transpired here, did he really deserve the end he met, brutally beaten in his own home with a lamp and tie pins stuck in his face? No, no one deserves that. That's not justice, and it's not human. But it was a possible motive. Still, police were looking at Frank's and David's murders as possibly being connected to others that had occurred in the broader local region. They had to. If any connections could be established, it might give them a huge lead in the hunt for this potential serial offender. And while they were looking into each of these cases separately, different detectives assigned to each... The police did set up an overarching homicide command to oversee and look into potential connections between these two murders and others. Two crimes that were looked into were the recent murder of Trevon Parkin at Glebe just six months earlier. Parkin was a convicted child sex offender who had not long been released from Long Bay Jail. He had been the victim of a brutal blunt force attack. Parkin was killed with a bowling pin, which if anyone has ever held one, they are extremely heavy implements. There had also been genital mutilation in this case. Glebe was about 80 kilometres away from Wollongong, but they did find evidence to suggest that Parkin travelled the train line from Sydney to Wollongong. They also found a handprint at the scene, but this didn't match anything found at the Arkell and O'Hearn murder scenes. The only link here initially was the child sex offender angle and potential motive and the MO of the murder itself. A second crime that police looked at was from a decade earlier in 1988, and that was the murder of 63-year-old Leo Press. He was discovered dead from similar blunt force trauma from a bricklayer's lump hammer at his home in Harvard, Sydney's northern beaches, on the 13th of February. Unidentified prints had been located on nearby beer cans at the scene, which were also not a match to the O'Hearn, Arkell or Parkin scenes. But as I understand, the potential link here pertained to Leo's sexual orientation and the MO of the killing. Now, this case is obviously a two-parter. We have much to cover, so we're not going to keep the mystery swirling around these two cases or delve into them too much in this episode. At the end of the day... Both the murders of Trevor Parkin and Leo Press wouldn't be connected with those of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell. We know that with the power of hindsight. However, at the time, police had to investigate the possibility. We will, however, go into more detail on the Parkin and Press murders on our next Blue Label Patreon episode. So for those of you on Patreon, we've got that coming up. For those not, check out the link in the show notes for our Patreon page if you're interested in more exclusive True Blue episodes. Now's a good time to get onto Patreon too, Chloe. I think we have somewhere around 20 exclusive episodes on there now that you can binge, including some blooper reels and case updates. Circling the wagon back around to the crime scene at Frank Arkell's. A bit of a detour there, but I think that was necessary in all fairness. 
One thing the police did find at the Arkell murder scene that provided their strongest lead to date was a pair of Nike tracksuit pants and beige Colorado boots that were in vogue back at this time. The boots were a couple of sizes bigger than Frank wore, and the trackies simply not his style. Both were covered in blood and were clearly the killer's property. Some of Frank's clothing appeared to be missing too. Pants from a tracksuit he had, The top was still in the house, but the pants were gone, so it seemed likely the killer had left his own clothes and changed into Frank's before fleeing the scene. Police used the batch and brand numbers on the Colorado boots to go to the distributor to try and track the sales. This was a Mather's shoe store in Shell Harbour. They went through sales records and through credit card slips, narrowed purchases down to six customers. Police visited all six but they all had their boots and were subsequently eliminated from the inquiry. It was looking like their killer had brought these with cash. With this vital lead hitting a wall, police decided to turn to the public for information. Police say clothing dumped near the mutilated body of alleged sex offender Frank Arkell has given them vital clues to his killer. These are the clothes worn by Frank Arkell's killer, a pair of blood-spattered tracksuit pants, socks and hiking boots found discarded in the granny flat where Mr Arkell was murdered. We're obviously anxious to speak to anyone that's recognised these items of clothing or in fact seen anybody wearing those clothes in the area. At first they received no tips about the clothing and shoes, but a call did come through about a vehicle leaving Frank Arkell's property on the night of his murder. This was a red Nissan Skyline. The tipster wasn't certain it was leaving Frank's house, it it could have been his neighbours, but it was around the right time frame at 2.30am. The witness, due to their uncertainty, was put under hypnosis. They wanted him to recall absolutely everything possible to ensure that this was the exact car, possibly to get a rego or some defining features of the vehicle. They managed to confirm it was a red skyline within Frank's driveway with one male driving. From this, a sketch artist rendered a drawing. With this information, police were actually able to locate the car. This is the car police, detectives and investigators from Task Force Lincoln have been searching for. The vehicle, smashed and stripped, was uncovered by police in bushland at Mount Oosley on Sunday. A similar vehicle was seen in the vicinity of Mr Arkell's Reserve Street home at 2.30am the next day. The vehicle was meticulously forensically examined, but had no items or trace evidence linking the car to either of the murders. So it was back to the close for the police as their best lead. And it took a while. Initially, they didn't get any calls on their advertising of the trackies and boots, but eventually they did. And this call came from Crime Stoppers through to the Coromel Police Station from a woman named Mary. That's not her real name, but that's what we'll roll with. Mary, who was quite emotional on this call, she'd obviously thought long and hard about making it, Mary said that she had an ex-boyfriend who used to wear Nike tracksuit pants and beige Colorado boots, just like this, but at some stage he stopped wearing them. When she queried why he didn't wear them anymore, he said he'd lent them to a friend. When she probed further, he became agitated at her questioning. His attitude and some comments he made also made her wonder. She didn't think he was ever capable of hurting anyone, but he said things like, what would you do if you found out I killed someone, and confided in her that he'd done something really bad, but wouldn't elaborate on that. Her ex also showed a strange interest in the O'Hearn and Arkell murders, 
one time yelling at her for throwing out a newspaper because he hadn't read it yet and it had news on the Arkell murder. Apparently, he'd shown no interest in reading the paper prior to this. So obviously, this tale from Mary piqued police interest immediately. It was quite intriguing and needed to be looked into further. Mary gave police the name of her ex-boyfriend, Mark Van Crevel. While that name didn't mean much to police at first, it soon did, because they'd actually interviewed him just a few days after the murder of David O'Hearn. Mark was Keith Schreiber's housemate. He was a nice young bloke who'd helpfully shown them Keith's bedroom upon request, and even went to the station with police to give a statement about Keith's movements, effectively providing Keith with an alibi along with his employer. So this was very intriguing because now these satanic drawings and that whole angle came back into play with Mark in the mix as a suspect. Police moved quickly, putting Mark under surveillance. This was to get an idea of what he was all about, who he associated with, but also to protect the community if he indeed was the killer. Mark was seen in the company of Keith Schreiber, the pair seemingly best mates. Even though Mark was no longer living with Keith by this time, he was residing in a a hostel of sorts named Hebron House. Mark's older sister Belinda was also observed as being friendly with Keith. The thinking caps went on down at Police HQ, and they pondered how to get Mark's fingerprints to forensically link him to one or both of the murder scenes. They didn't want to just haul him in or do anything to risk tipping him off. But then police realised that the statement he'd given about Keith Schreiber, he'd handled that when he read and signed it. It had since been filed away in a plastic sleeve. So they fingerprinted the statement. Lo and behold, it came back with matches to both the Arkell and O'Hearn murder scenes. Police had their man, but they wanted it airtight. So they had their surveillance operatives take a discarded Coke bottle of Mark's and ran and developed a set of prints from that also. These prints from the Coke bottle matched the ones on the statement and those at both of the aforementioned murder scenes. That's a bingo. But police wouldn't get the chance to swoop on Mark Van Crevel. In the early evening of 30th of September 1998, Mark paid his rent to one of the hostel managers, Gay, at Hebron House. He seemed in normal spirits to her. He was a quiet and polite young man who had been there for around two months. They knew little about him, but that was the case with many of the troubled youth who lived there. They didn't ask questions and the youngsters didn't have to explain. Mark certainly hadn't explained why he'd changed his name in the past couple of weeks from Mark Jack Van Crevel to Mark Mala Valera. He'd legally done this via deed poll for reasons we can only guess. One early contention was that he'd done so due to his involvement in the Korean martial art Taekwondo, although it became evident the names Mala and Valera had nothing to do with that sport. Mark himself would later give a different reasoning for changing it, which we'll get to in due course. His passion for Taekwondo, however, was one thing that was evident and clearly important to Mark. It was said he'd attained blue belt status and trained up to eight times per week. He was a keen student who swept the floors at his dojo and trained very hard. Later this evening, Mark went to his dojo where he walked in to greet his sensei, Rodney Day, who was doing paperwork prior to the lessons beginning that evening. Mark, who was usually a calm young man, appeared quite agitated to Rodney. 
Mark said he wanted to tell Rodney something but wondered if it would affect his training, get him expelled if he'd done something wrong. Rodney explained that it depended on what he'd done, took a guess, but really was nowhere near the level of what Mark was about to tell him. Mark said, You know those murders? I did them. Rodney was a bit stunned, in disbelief at first. Then he went through a wave of emotions, denial, thinking Mark was you know, perhaps just seeking attention, then a bit of anger. So he was in a bit of a headspin about it all, understandably. Rodney told Mark to change out of his training gear, his gi, and put his street clothes back on. They were going to go for a drive and a chat. While Mark changed, Rodney organised another instructor to take the class, and the pair left in Rodney's vehicle thereafter. They took a drive to either a coffee shop or McDonald's. Different sources said different places. Perhaps it was a McCafe, if that was a thing, back in 98. Anyway, they had a chat. Mark didn't want to go to the police, but eventually Rodney convinced him it was the right thing to do. And really, that's all Rodney could think about was getting Mark to the cops. They drove back to the dojo briefly so Mark could soak up the atmosphere for a bit before stopping by his hostel to get a couple of items that had sentimental value to him. These items happened to be a knife and a samurai sword, neither of which he'd use in the murders, he assured Rodney. He asked his sensei to hold them for him, for safekeeping. Rodney, not wanting to fire Mark up, agreed. He'd done well to this point, despite a couple of heated moments, to keep things calm with Mark. And it was probably that respect Mark had for him, that teacher-student dynamic that enabled Rodney to get Mark to the police station at all. Rodney and Mark arrived at Wollongong Police Station around five minutes to nine that evening and approached the front desk, where Rodney spoke to a young constable named Fiona Olgaier. He said that his young counterpart wanted to confess to the murders of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell. Constable Allgaier, taken aback at first, just like Rodney had been only hours earlier, took a moment to absorb what she'd heard before responding, I'll just get someone. And that's where we're going to put a pin in this tale for now, Chloe, to be continued next week. We'll talk a bit more about Mark Valera and his confession to police, but this story doesn't end there, and it won't be the last time we hear the surname Van Crevel, or Keith Schreiber for that matter. Your thoughts on what we've covered today? Yeah, well, what a brutal crime. In particular, David's murder is horrifying. People often talk to me about Catherine Knight and the description of the crime scene there, and I think this one will get a mention here and there too. And our thoughts obviously go out to his family. Like we said in the episode description, I think you'll cover, he seemed like a genuinely great person. Um, it's interesting to me that so much can be living under the surface in people's lives, that when looking at motives, so many things can be involved, both society's broader views and things closer, relationships that people could have could potentially influence it. To me, in these cases, it seems like both may be cases of vigilantes dealing with people that they didn't think would get the right punishment or that the court wouldn't be able to deal with them. Thinking of the times, I know that there was a lot of discrimination against gay men and confusion about that if people did come out as gay that they would be pedophiles or vice versa and I have a feeling that David in particular got caught up in someone who had feelings about this and was very, very confused and is just an awful victim. 
Um, it just all makes me so sad. I just think that, you know, neither had to die. No one ever should die like this. But, yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to say at this stage. Um, you definitely have some thoughts on this, Sean. Let us have them. Yeah, as you said, very sad and our thoughts are with the uh, the families. I feel very deeply for the uh, O'Hearn family and, and what happened to David, a tragic end to the life of someone who, you know, he genuinely seemed to be one of the good guys, this bloke, you know, a real pillar of that local community in uh, in uh, Dapto, you know, running that tab for some of the older residents in the area. Just very sad. But, uh, you know, and the, the, the Frank R. Cowell murder, well, look, as we said, it's a tough one to run commentary on because you know he was technically innocent, but due to the allegations and his high profile, you know, his reputation was not very good or in existence at all by this time. You know whether he was innocent or not, I still think the way his life came to an end was horrific, and that he didn't deserve that. So no one, no, you know, no one does. There was a a lot on counter-arguments in the research, too, about um, that Tony Bevan having an axe to grind with Arkell, having defeated him politically, losing around 8 or $9 million to the man in deals. So, you know, fair's fair. I think uh, it would be remiss of us to not point these things out. It would have been better to see him face the four charges and for that to be dealt with fairly, not like this. And in my opinion, as we'll hear more of next week, and this is probably sort of leading back to what you were saying with the confusion and the motives there, Chloe. You know, we, we will hear more of Mark, uh, Mark Valera's motivations, but I believe it was the media's tarnishing of Frank Arkell that made him a target. You know, it's not their fault. The media didn't kill him, but it's an example of how that loose reporting can do some, some serious real-world damage. Um, but just that, that sheer brutality of, of Mark Valera's crimes, you know, it was just astounding to me. I, I, as you mentioned, I don't think we've heard such a graphic crime scene probably since that Catherine Knight episode. You know, that was very disturbing and so was this. And we'll hear more about that next week when we hear the confession from Mark's own mouth and he gives one of those interesting uh, sort of tours of the house with detectives where he gives a bit of a play-by-play. It's very interesting but deeply disturbing. So uh, that's it from me for this week, Chloe. Yeah, so moving on to happy thoughts, what is yours this week? Mine is, uh, so at our house, which we've built, we've got some grass um, coming through now, which is really cool. So I think I told you um, last weekend I spent a number of days doing manual labour, which is not up my alley whatsoever, <laughs> um, laying the seed and spreading some hay and fertiliser and different things. Um, that's starting to come through, which is really cool. You know, we've got the bulk of our landscaping sort of done now too. So place is starting to look good, starting to feel like home. So that is my happy thought for this week. That's definitely a happy thought. That's awesome. Um, mine is that I've just watched United States of Tara. Um, I, I, it's just a coincidence, but our last Patreon episode was on someone with dissociative identity disorder and this show is about that. So right. um, Tony Collette plays the um, main protagonist, Tara, with, and she has, I think, at some stages seven, sometimes three um alters and it only went for three seasons they were half an hour long episodes so I've watched it really with it over two weeks it was so easy to yeah. get through but such a good story I just think Tony Collette's such a good actress and it's a pretty dark 
show, but it's got some pretty good comedy bits in it as well. Um, Pat Oswald's in it, one of our favourites. So, <laughs> Not nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've just been watching that and um, laying low and, yeah, it's been pretty good. Ah, very good. Yeah, she is great. I know that um, – have you seen that movie Mental she did? No. Yeah, it's Australian. Well, yeah, she's Australian, but it's an Australian one, and it's really good. And again, she plays. It's not not the same type of character, but she, play, as the name the, the title suggests, she plays a fairly uh, kind of an unhinged sort of person. But um, it's very funny. But one of the good things about that movie is um, it features one of the best international Australian accents I've ever heard from um, you know Leave Schreiber. Yeah. That guy, he, um, yeah, you know him, that actor. Um, so I don't, is he British or American? I think he's British, isn't he? American, I think. Well, and Ameri- he nailed it. He does. So he's in it and he plays an Australian character and he does an Australian accent and he absolutely nails it. You wouldn't pick oh. that he wasn't. And, and our accent generally, you know, for internationals is you hear a few, sometimes some comedians can do it pretty well, but um, he absolutely nails it. So, yeah, anyway. That's so funny. Usually people just sound like they're impersonating um, a VB ad from the 80s when they try and do it. That's only, you know, people <laughs> wheel out a shrimp saying and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's it for us. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime, or you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. As we said in the next one, we're going to be talking about those uh, Parkin and Press murders. And now is a great time to get on board because we've got a whole big back catalogue there um, ready for you guys to binge. So that's it for us this week, guys. I'm going to go and have some lunch now, Chloe. Um, We'll be back next week with uh, part two on the Wollongong murders. Uh, Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. (laughs) Enjoy your lunch. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.